Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes Store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. If you want more than one episode, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, eking out a meager existence in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Baskin, hemorrhaging cash in Austin, Texas. <laughs> and this is Wes Allen, uh, obsessed with his new iPad in Boston, Massachusetts. No, you got one. That's a priori, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Did you read Plato on it? I did a little bit. The book reading thing on there is actually sweet. And uh, there's a very nicely formatted copy of Jowett's translation of the Theotetus, so it was very nice. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I have another edition from, from when I was at uh, University of Texas, a different translation. And- well, I have the giant book that's probably the same one that you have, but I found it actually more convenient since it was only a dollar to get the complete dialogues for my Kindle. Yeah. I just carried that around and was able to take notes in that rather than defacing my giant Bible-like thing with very, very skinny pages. So, wait a second. You're telling me you got the entire works of Plato for your Kindle for a buck? Yes. See, Seth? Technology's not all bad. <laughs> it's a fine translation. It's Jowett. I'm just thinking that apparently the collected works of Plato, the founder of modern <laughs> philosophy, are about a third... <laughs> And basically, the Western intellectual thought are worth about a thirteenth as much as, like, Sarah Palin's book. <laughs> well, how long has the copyright been expired on Plato? <laughs> <laughs> now, if you come yes. out with a new translation, Seth, then you can charge hmm. $9.99 for it. Or a commentary. Our question... I should have said this earlier, but here we Because <laughs> we've already been talking about it. Our question for episode 18 is, what is knowledge? Featuring two dialogues from Plato, the Theotetus and the Mino. For a link to those texts, you can look at the website, partiallyexaminedlife.com. Why, there are many wonderful things at partiallyexaminedlife.com. T-shirts, songs to sing, things to read, comics. And in fact, I will have a longer uh, version. We, we, we got some good feedback. So we covered a living philosopher, Arthur C. Danto. And on a whim, I sent him a link to the episode, since we can't actually do that with Plato or Kant, at least not with any success. <laughs> and he listened seemingly that same day and wrote us a very nice note back. Here's a few quotes that he gave us permission to, to say. Dear guys, I was really thrilled by the podcast you sent. It was a unique experience seeing philosophy living in our culture. I've never before heard my work discussed like that, and rarely as intelligently. Woot! <laughs> that was me holding up the horns, my friend. <laughs> he says, I think the way you address philosophical issues inspiring, including the kind of horseplay that Plato edited out of the dialogues, which had, after all, to be transcribed by hand. 
He says, uh, so thanks for the stupendous honor you've done me here. I enjoyed every minute, including the song at the end. So he's the first one who's ever said a nice thing about the song. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So we're kind of beyond thrilled. He's a very nice guy, very big name. It's the first podcast he'd ever listened to, apparently. Wow. First introduction to podcasting. So he has no basis for comparison. <laughs> and we were saying nice things about him. <laughs> so, in any case, it's awesome all around. I've had a little back and forth correspondence with him. He recommended some additional readings for us in the area of aesthetics that I will convey straight to the uh, readers of partiallyexaminedlife.com. Yeah. And uh, I'd recently put up a post about Fodor's book, What Darwin Got Wrong, and some of the reviews of that. And um, I'm going to follow that up because I had a exchange with Jerry Fodor himself and a brief exchange with Ned Block, who had written a negative review of his book. And then there are two new reviews out. So just to sort of cap it off and, and then we'll say goodbye to uh, <laughs> philosophy and biology for a while. But Yes, this is more discussion concerning criticisms of evolutionary theory, this time from an allegedly philosophical perspective. So if you're interested in that stuff, go check it out. And then Mark and I have a little debate on um, deriving ought from is, which begins with a uh, Sam Harris, who's sort of, I think he's called one of the new atheists as well. And he's a critic of religion. And uh, he gave a TED lecture on the, the idea that we could use science to say something about morality and that religion was unnecessary and uh, or more broadly that there are ways that we could all agree (laughs) from some sort of you know objective standard about basic moral principles that would then rule out practices like uh corporal punishment and wearing a burqa and other socially uh controversial matters yeah so i put up a brief snarky response and mark has some interesting Responses, well, largely because I agree with, like, I think we're both, I think virtue ethics and Aristotle and, and Nietzsche's approach to morality has an appeal to both of us. But there's some differences. And also there's been some more discussion in the blogosphere about the whole Sam Harris thing, pro and con, and it'd be nice to link to some of that stuff too. So I'll do that. Yep. So we're getting slightly more responsible about keeping <laughs> up with what's going on in the current world of philosophy, particularly because it seems harder for us to agree on very current things like that to read officially for the podcast. So we're trying to do a little more of that semi offline. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And one thing also, there have been some readers involved in that Sam Harris debate, which we appreciate too. And so there's a little, yes. nice little discussion going on there. So. Yes. Please contribute. If you're interested in what's going on here, go and uh, post your comments directly responding to the blog entries, or we have a Facebook group as well that lets us go into a little more detail a little more back and forth about particular things, and those won't get lost, I think, as easily in the uh, ether of old postings. You know what? I better do the ground rules. Number one, we do not assume that our audience knows anything about any of this. There uh, should be no gratuitous name-dropping. We're interested in ideas, not with fetishizing a bunch of dead philosophers. If we have a point to make, we'll just make it, and not say, for instance, you would understand me if only you had read Descartes' famous analysis of the scientific method Move over, Francis Bacon. Now it's time for something meatier. <laughs> I hate myself. All right. We shall be, number three, we shall be rigorous and exact in all that we say, except in the case we're not doing so. It seems like it would be more entertaining. Or in my case, always. <laughs> Back in episode one, we talked about uh, did the apology, right? Plato 
quoting Socrates. All of his dialogues are about the character Socrates, his mentor. We don't know how much was actually said by Socrates and how much is something Plato was making up. The Apology was his speech during his trial and before his execution. And this is supposed to be taking place like a week before that, right? Not too far along before that. He talks about the trial coming up, in fact. That is in the Theotetus, which is his main uh, dialogue about knowledge, which is probably what we should concentrate on. So I'm just going to have to say that this is a contrast of styles for me. I thought the the Theotetus (laughs) was Thea tedious. <laughs> oh. Thank you very much. Two shows on Friday. Tip your waitress. <laughs> I, I could not believe how difficult it was for me to get through that. It was, I just, it was awful. And then the, so you like the Mino better? Oh, I like the Mino much better. Much, much better. That was the one I had read before. I don't know that I'd read the Theotetus. Had you? I think guess? I had read both of them, but boy, I'd... F- oh, yeah. I, yeah. I must have blocked it out. I had day. a, uh, I wrote a, um, my junior thesis was on Theotetus and, and then the critique of pure reason, putting them together. And then uh, my senior year is on the Sophist, which is a follow-up to the Theotetus. And then um, I, I did the Hankinson course in, at the University of Texas. Hankinson, for the listeners, is a Plato or an ancient philosophy scholar. Anyway, although I have to admit my preparation for this podcast is probably the worst it's ever been. But I have in the past <laughs> spent really unnatural amounts of time with with this dialogue so, all right so but. seth you can give us the quotes <laughs> seth you, you you should do the the summary okay so let's start with the theotetus the question is what is knowledge that's the question that is posed by socrates to theotetus theotetus is a student i guess or some sort of a protege of theodorus who is a guy that he's also talking to there, who's also in the dialogue <laughs> And as one of you mentioned, this is supposedly taking place as Socrates is on his way sort of into town for his trial. Socrates and Theodorus start chatting, and Theodorus recommends Theotetus to Socrates as his brightest student. So, of course, Socrates immediately says, come over here and sit here and let's talk about something. So Socrates asks him, what is knowledge? And Theotetus, his first answer is essentially that knowledge is perception, which Socrates equates to the saying that man is the measure of all things. And they go into a discussion about perception and how things appear to people and so on. Needless to say, there are a number of refutations of this point of view. He brings in at some point an active principle and that perception must be perception of something. There's always an agent and an object and ultimately, he brings in that you need to have memory. Can you have a knowledge of something that you remember since memory is not a perception? And then gives a wonderful little example of the aviary, your brain being like an aviary where you capture birds and then put them in the aviary. And they get to a point where they agree that true opinion combined with rational explanation is what knowledge actually is. And then there's a long refutation of that, and it sort of ends. That's my summary of the Theotetus. Right. So relating this to sort of epistemology in general, is what is knowledge? Well, it's not just belief, right? Because people can believe all sorts of dumb stuff. Oh, well, is it just true belief? Well, people just have true beliefs. They could just have it sort of by coincidence and then, you know, circumstances could change and they don't, 
If you don't really know what you're talking about, we don't want to call that knowledge. If it's just true belief, oh, justified true belief. So that's sort of the common definition that's thrown around here. And, and that's what's building here. And they don't say justified true belief. They say you know, true belief with an explanation, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, and then he dismisses that as well. But at least that in an intro philosophy class tend to be the kind of thing that they throw at you of what is knowledge. They're settled. Yes. And um, I think I think justified true belief is still the typical, at least analytic, yeah. definition of knowledge that will be given. Yeah. That is true. It's the one modern philosophers try and stick to. And there's a lot more in the earlier part about perception that will relate back to the discussion of Hume, I think, if we want to go there. Sure. So just a quick point. The reason why I found the text so difficult is that it takes a long time to get there. And Socrates goes off on a lot of tangents, it seems to me. And Theotetus in no way acquits himself as somebody exceptionally bright. He has very little to add. Socrates does all the talking and Theotetus is very much like a straight guy for his shtick. Whereas at least in the Mino, Mino contributes something to the conversation. And it just is more fun to read. It gives drama because he's like admiring this young Theotetus boy. In fact, because this is a dialogue, you know, you can read it aloud. You can read the different parts. So I tried for just like (laughs) 30 seconds with my wife to have her read the Theotetus part. And so she was doing that. And then I, you know, of course, we ran into a giant, really, really long Socrates speech. So I was like, I'm not going to do this. And then instead turned it around and and said (laughs) something like, come here, slave boy. (laughs) (laughs) As if we are role-playing Socrates, and she was so offended by that, she just <laughs> thought that was that was uh, sacrilegious. Not sacrilegious toward Plato, but sacrilegious toward sex, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a very short, one-sided version of the dialogue. This is Seth Paskin's dramatic rendering of the character of Theotetus in the first part of Theotetus by Plato. We should ask. True. Certainly we should. I never heard that he was. Of course he is, Socrates. I think so. I should say not. Very true, Socrates. I'm glad to hear it, Socrates, but what if it was only in jest? I suppose I must, if you wish it. Yes. I do my best. Of course. Yes. What? Certainly they are. Yes. That literally was a series of lines, one after the other, that Theotetus speaks in the beginning of the dialogue that gives you some idea of how fun that role would be to play if this were dramatized. (laughs) The fact that you just did that makes me want to sample each one of those and make it so like whenever my computer makes a beeping noise, it will randomly say one of those things in your voice. I I think there's a song there, actually. (laughs) I was going to say I should auto-techno. Yeah. Okay. On to Mino. So the quick summary of Mino is that, let's see, Socrates is having a conversation with Mino, who is an eminent person, but not from Athens. He's from someplace else of a good family. He's a younger man, but not young enough for Socrates' tastes, I don't think. (laughs) I think he's a general, right? Is he a general? Yeah, I think he's a powerful military guy. Okay, that that doesn't come across in the dialogue, because he talks about his father and his family. But Mino, in any case, was a student of Gorgias, Gorgias? And so he, gorgeous, he, gorgeous George, he represents that right. school. Uh, and so Socrates, in this case, it's actually Mino who poses the question to Socrates. And the question is whether virtue is acquired by teaching, by practice, or if neither by teaching or practice, then whether it comes to man by nature or some other way. And Socrates says, 
Well, before I answer the question of whether, how it's acquired, shouldn't we ask what it actually is? And Mino says, okay. So Socrates then turns the tables on him and says, what's your definition? What is the School of Gorgias definition? And Mino says something to the effect of, well, there's the virtue of the statesman and the virtue of the housewife and the virtue of the slave. And there's lots of virtues depending on the type of person you are and the place you're in and so forth. And Socrates says, geez, you know, you, you flatter me. I ask for one and you bring me a cornucopia of virtues. So he says, isn't there something common between them? And they start that discussion of what are the common traits of virtue and can they get to a definition of virtue that way? And why do we care about this in the knowledge episode? We care about this in the knowledge episode because it is the same exercise using virtue as an example as any other. It's getting from sort of the particular or your experience to a more general definition. That would be my answer to that question. And it also addresses the problem of inquiry, the Mino question, where if we don't know something and we want to find out what it is, well, how do we even begin our inquiry if we completely lack knowledge of it? So, Well, geez, you didn't right. even let me get there. Sorry. This is, this is always the case. It takes me forever to make a point, and you guys are always anticipating, and you, you, you jump my train. So that's cool. All right. Keep yes, the train going. Go Sorry. At some point during the discussion where Socrates is, of course, confounded everything and they realize that they're lost and, and they have to start over again from scratch, Mino says to him, Socrates, if we don't know what virtue is, how will we know when we find it or if we stumble across or come across the actual correct knowledge of what virtue is? How can you know something or come to know something that you don't even know anything about? And Socrates talks about this idea of the soul being immortal and having this recurring sort of coming into existence and through a life and then dying and being reborn over and over again. And eventually you come to know everything and that knowledge or the experience of learning is really just remembering things that you have already known. And there's a very, very famous section of the dialogue where Socrates poses a series of questions to Mino's slave about geometry and gets him to come to an understanding of some principles of geometry. And this is intended to show that the slave who had never been taught geometry just simply by the act of questioning from Socrates comes to quote unquote, remember this principle or knowledge that he must have acquired, I guess, in a previous life or some such. And that that is how you can come to know something that you have no foreknowledge of and have no framework, so to speak, to, to understand. But needless to say, like all Platonic dialogues, this one ends without satisfaction in that they are unable to come to any satisfactory understanding of what virtue is. It is neither acquired by a teaching or practice, nor does it come to man by nature, but is somehow a divine gift of the gods. And it's an incredibly dissatisfactory ending, if you ask me. But that's the quick summary of the Mino. So the thing that Plato is most famous for really doesn't come through in either of these, which is fine <laughs> because it's not about metaphysics. That is his theory of forms. But there's some sort of assumptions that you can read into that just in the, in the whole way that he does the inquiries in both of these. So the fact that in the Mino you were saying that he's not satisfied with a plurality of examples for something. You can't say you know what virtue is just because you can name a bunch of them. You have to know why you pick those particular things out as virtues, because there is some thing that underlies all the individuals. And in the same way in the Theodetus, and I'm kind of jumping ahead to make a comparison to Hume here in his model of the mind, somewhere in there he talks about 
how we use our senses to detect individual colors, individual sounds, sort of each of these, our senses is attuned to a particular kind of sense data or something like that. But then we must have some other faculty, the self or something, the soul that apprehends how these things are unified or what the thing is behind all the individuals. So in both these cases, these are pointing to the overall picture of Plato as a guy who is underlyingly a believer in unified forms are the metaphysical term that he uses in neither of these dialogues, <laughs> right? Were, well, I mean, were you guys just reading the forms well, into this all over no, the place? I, uh, because no, because the dialogue that was supposed to have been written before this Parmenides is, is a long critique of the theory of forms. So Theaetetus is widely considered to be Plato's sort of return to the question of knowledge after he's rejected the theory of forms. Even though I see, I think you're right, there's the same trying to grasp at some part of knowledge, unity, which is non-perceptual. The unity behind the multiplicity. Yeah, exactly. But I think, at least in the way that he's given an account of it before, he's no longer adhering to that. And that's why you don't hear about the forms in the theaties. I think he's come to have some doubts about it. So I did look at a little at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article about this, which just was stressing that we really only know from context and the fact that historical figures are mentioned in some, like even what order these were written in or what order the, the dialogues were supposed to have taken place in, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. It's scholars guessing. So the ones that sort of sound like the apology... Those are the earlier ones, and those are the ones where Plato's saying more what Socrates probably actually said. And the later ones talk more about – I see, I thought the forms were, for the most part, later were really Plato in particular, whereas Socrates was more of a – seemingly a skeptic that gets us all these, you know, unsatisfactory conclusions at the end of things. You know, all I know is that I know nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, Plato, the later – platonic dialogues that are just pretty obviously stylistically different than the earlier ones um, were more aggressive in putting forward otherworldly metaphysics and being more insistent on the theory of forms and this memory theory but of knowledge and all that. I think those are the not? early, the Theotetus is considered like the sort of last take on knowledge. And my take on it too is I, I don't like even the theory of forms, like I'm not even sure Plato really had a theory of forms. I mean, I, I, I take, like you said, Socrates at least is a skeptic, and I've always taken Plato that way as well, although a lot of readers and scholars don't take him that way. But I think these are useful, you know, even even his use of myths and little stories about the afterlife and, and all of that. I, I take him as sort of working at giving tentative solutions to the problems, but the dialogues seem to be inconclusive, which seems to be the skeptical you know, even the early dialogues, Mino, like the Mino is, you know, you don't get any. All you get is, I don't know what's going on at the very end. So, anyway. I mean, I didn't see that. I did look through some of the Republican in preparation for this, and he's extremely aggressive about, this is what the ideal state would look like, and very specific. Like, it doesn't seem all, eh, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, it seems spelled out in disgusting detail. Yeah, but it's an exercise. It's aggressive as an exercise, but it's still, I, I have always wondered to what extent does he really believe any of it? You know, he's, um, yeah. So anyway, I just, I just wanted to bring up those issues as a point of interpretation. If anybody's interested in those, there's so much literature, you, it'll make you gag online. So let's just talk about the ideas as they are raised in here and see if we like them or not. <laughs> and not worry so much about, yeah. you know, what Plato actually did believe or, Reading more into it than is, is there. How do the dialogues fit together? There are so many puzzles here, but yeah. they really sort of... Yeah, those it's, are... It's meta-commentary. It's not even commentary. Exactly. meta-commentary. That's really... Ridiculous. It's one of the more unfortunate tangents in scholarship where instead of discussing the issues, it's like, was this late Plato, early Plato? And, 
you know, and then you have the different theses about how it all fits together. Right. People that try to read it as he believed the same thing throughout his career, Plato, or that he changed his mind at various points. And <laughs> And then it's like, you know, that uh, that's one of the things actually in grad school, it always dismayed me. It's like, you get in, I, I'm going to learn something about Plato. And then it's like, oh my God, there's early, middle, and late. I'm already, <laughs> one Plato <laughs> is enough, three Platos are. Uh. The individual things in here did make me want to track down more, you know, maybe we should have a Plato metaphysics episode or something, or to be able to talk more about like Parmenides and the Protagoras or some of these other ones. Well, the, um, I mean, I think all that stuff sort of loses sight of what is amazing about Plato as a figure is that he managed somehow in all of these diverse works, whether they were written early or late or whether he believed X or Y or Z, he raised and framed like the vast majority of the key philosophical questions that plague everybody today. That's the thing that's amazing is it's not like we have a fragment or, hey, you know, he thought everything was made of water, you know, or something like that. It's like... Right. All these writings together, he basically covers most of the ground that there is to cover in philosophy. It's like what there is, how you know it, how you should act, language, thought, all this kind of stuff. And then you have the great Aristotle sort of in contrast to that, who does much of the same kind of from a different perspective. And it's just phenomenal that you had these two intellectual titans that also were prolific and their documents were preserved and that there just really hasn't been anybody else like it. So even though yeah, I kind of bitch and moan about all of the style and all that, I mean, it's if you're not in awe of Plato, then you don't really, I think, have any strong sense of <laughs> what it was all, you, what he really represents. So. There's a famous quote, everything's just a footnote to Plato. I think that was... Uh, all subsequent philosophy. Yeah, all the history of philosophy is just a footnote. Yeah, I think that's Whitehead. Whitehead? Yeah, who's... Yeah. Uh, Quoting Wes from an earlier episode, quoting Whitehead, <laughs> he said that everything is a footnote. Oh, you're going to get that's, on me that's why, name that's why I, No, that's why I know, because you, cause you quoted it in a previous oh, episode. I I don't, it's not because I read Whitehead and I know this. <laughs> it's I've heard that particular quote dropped with the name drop on it. I'm already all. starting to repeat. That's going to get bad, actually. Oh, that's yeah. fine. Everybody forgets everything. I have a few little anyway. riffs that, that just going to come back again and again, so... And for the listener's benefit, you should note that it's not that Mark did not read Whitehead. It's that nobody has ever read Whitehead, <laughs> except, oh. except for Russell, I think. I have a Whitehead book here. Yeah, but you've yeah, never I, read I it. Yeah, I had a Whitehead. No, I haven't read it. Yeah. <laughs> what is he? I don't Lord, even remember what its name is. I'm looking over Lord it. North Alfred's White Northhead, something nice. Just got like six also, names. Could you- could we make sure we check to see that philosophers are dead before we criticize them, by the way? <laughs> oh, did Ned otherwise Locke and Schroeder we, get on we, you? <laughs> no, no. No, he didn't. He was very polite. No, I'm just thinking, you know, it's like the Dante thing. We don't want to alienate any potential... Uh, right, well, and that actually are, that already that already came up. Because right after we did the Singer episode, I posted on the Facebook bulletin board for utilitarianism or for peter singer it was like his fan site or whatever i put a link to the thing and we had a few peter singer fans post incensed <laughs> replies <laughs> on our blog for that but then like within the week after that somebody from the bbc or something emailed me and said tonight we're interviewing peter singer on the air if you have a question you want to ask him you should call in and do it. I don't think the dude knew that I was not in England. Like, I don't even know if it would have been possible for me to do, but I didn't even 
want to consider it because I didn't want to call Peter Singer's attention to the episode in which you two <laughs> so quickly <laughs> slammed and dismissed the dude's work. No, Just I for the record. You, I thought you dismissed him too. Oh, no. Oh, I was okay. pretty... Uh, just, we just didn't have time to really discuss him enough to dismiss him. So yeah, we had that angry. You'd I just still, threw it out okay. there. I did not quickly slam and dismiss him. I took a little bit of time to do it. I tried to reconstruct his argument, and I disagreed with one of the premises. What I did was a perfectly legitimate philosophical response. The fact that I have an internal mechanism that causes me to get emotionally overreactive in certain circumstances and around people who I think probably wear patchouli has got nothing to do with it. I think I'm just getting lumped in with Seth and, and that I actually was giving a fair. <laughs> and, and, I think you were very mean and, and, reasons... mean and dismissive as well. <laughs> in, no, any I, case, I in any case, we will edit this out so that this episode won't be over two hours. Uh, this we'll is, little, this the is the banter right? that our fans love. Oh, is it? Okay. Hey, uh, didn't Danto mention the, the digressions? Yes, in fact, yes. Danto said specifically that we have the kind of irreverent humor that was edited out of the Platonic dialogues. Oh, <laughs> apropos to this episode. It must be and he would know, because he was there. Ba-dum-bum. <laughs> 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 bum Sorry. He's so old right now. Okay, we're no, not going uh, to start old. Well, only someone who's retired would have the time to, to listen to, to the podcast. So I'm grateful for that. I'm not. That is true. Yeah, we should check that he's actually in his right mind and not <laughs> writing to oh, us. Stop. From stop. Oh, stop. <laughs> yes. That he, would is, be. he is a very smart guy who's contributed greatly to. The canon of human knowledge. Yes, all right. And we should have respect. I'm very pleased that he was pleased with our (laughs) podcast. So we've already, yeah, dude. I had trouble sleeping that night. I told you guys that. That's pretty pathetic. But I was, I walked around with a little bit of a smirk and a a smug sense of self satisfaction for about a day and a half. Okay, that's that's unusual. (laughs) Are you kidding? (laughs) Yes. I am not showered by compliments in my uh, everyday existence. So. Yeah. Come on, Mark. Where are the marriage jokes? <laughs> All right. Shall we, shall we regress from the digression? So that, that dumb asshole Plato. Let's talk about him instead. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just because just he can't respond. Bring that irreverence, Mark. Bring the irreverence. <laughs> okay. So since the last episode was about Hume, where knowledge comes from impressions the senses and and so on should we start with the knowledge is perception argument and refutation in the theotetus sure he kind of goes between knowledge is perception and knowledge is belief Mm -hmm. very quickly i don't think those are even treated separately he just rolls he rolls all the things he doesn't like this uh relativism and naive realism and (laughs) uh he he rolls them all into one thing and then rejects them all. He does kind of like a, a, a rapid-fire series of refutations, it's true. So there's the thought that anything that I perceive, that there's something true about it. I'm not using his words here. I'm trying to get at what sort of the modern versions of these would be. So somebody like Hume would say, there's nothing false in perception itself. It's just in the conclusions you draw from perception. 
So if you're just talking about there is red here or something, how could you be wrong about that? Exactly. You can't be wrong about your own perceptions. Your perception is always of something that is, and it's unerring, is kind of the way he puts it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, things appear as they are. So <laughs> there's your naive realism and complete and absolute self-awareness and self-consciousness of your perception. That's kind of his straw man that he sets up as that view, that knowledge is perception. And then he proceeds to tear it down. Right. And it's pretty obvious even from that, from those two things, that there's different versions of those, that you could be a believer like Hume is in the veracity, because I don't know if you'd want to say there was veracity involved, because for Hume, you can't even talk sensibly about what's behind the perception. There just is the perception. So yeah. saying that it is as it appears doesn't even make any sense. Like the perception is it. Mm -hmm. It's analytically it. So there's that version, which is different from naive realism, which is to say that there are real objects in the world that have this appearance for real. <laughs> and even that, we talked in the Hume episode, I think about there are different versions of that. I mean, I think you can still think that the physical object of this piece of paper in front of me, this book, those are objective in a way, in that other people who come and look at the same thing mm. will perceive the same thing. There's systematic things about it that it's going to have a certain heft to it. If I turn it over, I'm going to have a different sort of set of perceptions. The perceptions are structured in a certain way. All of that enables me, I think, to talk about physical objects in the way that we do in our everyday life, but yet doesn't imply metaphysical realism that if there were no human beings on earth, then there would still be objects in any, in any sort of the sense that we talk about them. Right. But the naive realist, you know, would have to say, I, I don't know. I, I hate that. I don't even know what a naive, <laughs> the naive realist wouldn't be thinking about these things. The metaphysical right. I realist. I was about to say that the, the naive <laughs> realist just has yet to even ask the, the question, yet to get puzzled about, about that. Naive. Other, right. Yeah. They're out investing in questionable securities and being seduced by, <laughs> by evil men. They're so naive. Those realists. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. I know it stops just when things were getting really good, so please go download the full episode. You can purchase it in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store where you can become a Partially Examined Life citizen and get expanded access to our hefty back catalog a heap of bonus content, and earn the right to participate in not-school online discussion groups with other listeners. Go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 